Thank you for that introduction. I have to live up to it now. I'll just check the time, because uh, I can go on a long time when I'm ill-disciplined, so we won't do that today. Uh, but it's such a privilege to be here this morning. Um, I'm hearing good reports all the time about what's happening in Azerfontaine. Um, word is getting out, and it was wonderful to be with some of you on Wednesday evening. Um, now, I've been part of Joshua Generation virtually from the beginning. I think uh, the church had been going for about two months when Chantelle and I joined back in 1999, and it's been an adventure and a half from that weird group of people in meeting in one house to guys meeting around the world, and I've had the privilege not only of being a part of um, the leadership as that's happened in Joshua Generation, but with the start of, of 412 and the partnering churches we have, and uh, part of my responsibility is to travel around and go to different churches helping them, uh, mainly in Brazil. I oversee our work into Brazil. Uh, we'll be going in November, so if any of you want to join us in November, it's going to be a good time. We always have a good time in Brazil. Eh? Um, Ironically, the one time that Mike and Stacy went was a trip I didn't go on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's something about going out of your own context, of, of traveling and, and, and ministering. Uh, Jesus said it's better to give than receive, and it's true. Uh, when we take people and they minister out rather than receiving, you end up, you end up getting and so I want to encourage us as a people to be outward focused and not just inward focused. But um, in the early days, we, we used to laugh because um, it seemed sometimes almost every week, Andrew would refer to the same scripture. And that scripture was, anybody? Acts 2, 42 to 47. And the reason for, for that was that Acts 2.42 to 47 is a snapshot of the early church. It's a picture of what the early church looked like. Um, and the early church wasn't perfect. And as we read uh, the letters, we see that lots of the churches developed big problems. But in the beginning, the church was just full of health and full of life. And we, we don't want to build according to our ways and our priorities and our systems um, we want to build according to what we see in Scripture because we want to we be a church that reflects Jesus the way that the early church did. And Acts 2.42 just gives us a snapshot of what that looks like. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I want to talk to us this morning about something really, really important, and that's the word devotion, because devotion is at the heart of this thing. It's at the heart of our relationship with Jesus. It's the heart of church. It's the heart of our, our uh, mandate to the world, and in Revelation 2, 2, which you don't have because I didn't send it to you, just testing, <laughs> in, in the book of Revelation, um, there's the seven letters. In, in the letter to Ephesus, Jesus commends the church. But it's, I, I want to read it to you because I think this is, this is interesting and it's, it kind of gets to the point of why 
devotion is so important. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, you can listen to me. So to the church in Ephesus, write the, these words. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered, you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. That all sounds good, right? It says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've lost that devotion. You've lost that passion. You've lost that love that you had at first. And what does it look like when we've lost that passion, but we're still serving? Okay, because you can say, well, I'm still here. I'm still in church. I'm... You, know what it's, you know what it feels like? Do you know what it looks like? It looks like hard work, perseverance, uh, enduring hardship, and not growing weary. And often in the church, and I'm speaking as a leader, I can sometimes find myself in a place where I'm being faithful. I'm working hard. I'm persevering. I haven't given up. I'm still doing what I'm supposed to do, but it feels like hard work. It feels like enduring. It feels like church sucks, but I know I've got to be there. Has anybody ever felt that? <laughs> Some of you may have even felt like that today. Oh, I'd rather stay in bed this morning. But... And you know, it's good that when we don't feel it, we're obedient. You know, some people have this theology that if, you, if your attitude isn't right, don't do it. Now, as a father on Father's Day, I can tell you that there's been times I've asked my children to do things like tidy your room, and their attitude hasn't been right. <laughs> okay? But what I don't say to them is, oh, it's okay, leave your room as it is until you get your attitude right. I say, tidy your room, and while you're doing it, put your attitude right. So, it's good to be faithful. It's good to be obedient even when we don't feel like it. But isn't it so much easier when it comes from a place of passion, when it comes from a place of love, when it comes from a place of devotion? And that is possible for all of us, even an Englishman. You know, it's been so funny. I've been in Brazil preaching about passion, and suddenly I stopped and went, wait a minute, I'm speaking about passion as an Englishman to a bunch of Brazilians. There's something wrong here. But many years ago, something ridiculous happened to me. I changed my, my identity. I'm no longer a citizen of the United Kingdom. I'm not even a citizen of South Africa. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And it should be the nature of the kingdom of heaven that I carry, not my earthly culture. And so passion and devotion it's so important. It makes life so much easier. And instead of then responding to things like, oh, the elders have told us we've got to be at a meeting. <laughs> or a better prayer, otherwise God's going to be upset with me. You know, all of these things where we do things out of duty or obligation uh, or even guilt, rather than we do them as an overflow of passion and devotion. I came to South Africa uh, in 1994, just before the first elections, uh, the first democratic elections, and uh, everybody told me I was an idiot. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember, um, everybody was convinced there was going to be 
if not civil war, at least a lot of violence. People said, is it safe? And the thing was, I wasn't coming here out of a sense of duty, obligation, or because somebody told me to. I was coming because I was convinced this is where God wanted me, and I wanted to be where God wanted me to be. And my answer to people is the safest place I can possibly be is where God wants me to be. And in, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, um, you know, people who feel God's calling them to emigrate, it's amazing that when the economy gets bad, the number of people hearing God tell them to emigrate increases all of a sudden. And I don't think it's always God. I think it's people, people looking for comfort, people looking for safety. But it's amazing that when you're devoted to somebody, you will endure hardship. You'll endure uh, danger. You'll endure anything because of your devotion. And so, 1994, I arrived in South Africa, and I was at Bible College in a town called White River, up, in, up near the Kruger Park. That's where I met Chantelle, my beautiful wife. And uh, after a year, she graduated because she was cleverer than me, and I was still there. And she was living in Johannesburg. I'm working in Johannesburg, and I was still at Bible College. And regularly, what would happen on a Friday, I would get a phone call. And there was only one phone on campus. We, this was before cell phones, so I had to run halfway across campus. And, and then we'd talk, and she'd say, can we hang out this weekend? I said, yeah, let's do that. And she would drive from Johannesburg to White River after work on a Friday afternoon, which was about four, four and a half hour trip. She would arrive at White River, then I would get in the car and I would drive back to Johannesburg. So whatever time we got home, it was after midnight, whatever. Um, then the Saturday we would spend together Sunday, we'd go to church in the morning, and then after church, I would drive to White River, and she would drive home. So that's like 18 hours of driving to spend the day together. Now, if I said to you, I want you to drive 18 hours this weekend for a church service, how many of you would, <laughs> or for a one-day meeting? It's like, because I'm, that's, nobody forced her to do it. Nobody even pressured her or manipulated her. Or, it was like, we were stupid. Why were we stupid? Because there was a devotion. Now I don't know if she'd drive half an hour to come see me. <laughs> Not true. Not true. But the time, the money, petrol was a fair bit cheaper then. Okay, fair enough, but... But devotion causes you to do things that other people could never get you to do, or certainly could never get you to do happily and willingly. And so as I unpack devotion, the first thing I want to say about this is devotion has to come from you. Nobody can make you devoted. Nobody can compel devotion in you. Nobody can force you. Nobody can manipulate you to be devoted. If I had a gun right now and I put it to Mike's head and said, be devoted or I'll shoot you, I couldn't, I couldn't make him devoted. At the very best, 
I could force an outward compliance. At best, I could force an appearance of devotion, but I can't change his heart. Nothing can change your heart except you. Can I even make a, a controversial statement? Even God won't change your heart if you don't want him to. I think he can, he can change your heart more than you can. He can do the impossible. You know, so if, you know, he says, forgive your enemies. If you come to him and say, God, I want to, I'm just finding it impossible. I think he can give you the ability to. He can change your heart. But if you don't want him to, if you're resisting him working in your heart, he won't. If you harden your heart against God, it'll get harder and harder. But if I bend my will towards God, he then takes it further. But devotion has to come from you. It has to be given. It can never be taken. And lots of leaders forget that. In our zeal and our enthusiasm and wanting to take people places, and sometimes some leaders, in order that they look good. I want everybody at the meeting because it makes me look good. And as leaders, we cannot be asking you to do things so that we look good because that's not devotion. That's not devotion to God or even devotion to you. That's devotion to ourselves. They devoted themselves to these things. And the problem with devotion and you know, there's, there's lots of worship songs that, that talk about love and commitment and how much, you know, um, and somebody once said, we don't tell lies in church, we sing lies in church, right? <laughs> so sometimes we're singing songs, and I'm, I wonder, are we really singing the truth? Uh, you are worthy of it all. Does that, who knows that song? You are worthy of it all. Is that true? Or if we were being truthful, would we be singing, you are worthy of what's left. You are worthy of a bit. You are worthy of what's convenient. And we're going through tough times. Who's, who's feeling financial strain at the moment? And work strain and that it's like, no electricity, and it's cold, and it's wet, and it's like, well, there's, there's so much that's coming at us. And the challenge with, with devotion is no matter how much you're devoted at one point, devotion can wane. In marriage, is it true? You know, you, you stand there on, on, on your wedding day, and you say your vows, like you, and you mean it. You're being honest. You're being completely honest. You know, what I have is yours, and you know, till death do us part, sickness and health, better and worse, or worse, all of these vows. No matter what the circumstances, I'm going to give you my best. And then over the years, if you allow it, your devotion wanes, and you end up doing things for each other because it's an obligation of marriage rather than out of devotion. Is, is that just me? 
And then, when our devotion starts to wane, our devotion can get caught by something else. It's easy, for example, when you're going through, Chantal and I, I love her, we're amazing, we've been married since 96, so that's 27 years virtually. Um, we've had some bumps in the road. We've had times where it's been very hard for her to be devoted to me. I don't know why, because I'm so amazing, but... And there's been times where maybe we've taken each other for granted a little bit. Perhaps there's been times where in the busyness of life and the challenges of life and, and all of those things, we, we began to miss each other. And there were times where I would come home and because we'd missed each other, it was like there was friction at home. Or where maybe I wasn't being as good a husband as I should have been. And when I got home, there was... And it was a challenge because I would go out preaching or ministering in places and it was like I was a winner. I was a hero. I was the man of God. People looked up to me and I'd come home and feel like a loser. And so it was easier to want to be where I felt like a winner. And I could be distracted. And instead of giving myself to what was most important, I would give myself to things that made me feel good because my devotion wasn't where it should be. And so the first thing is our devotion has to come from inside. It can't be imposed. The second thing is this. All of you are devoted. The question is, what are we devoted to? Because we were created by God to be worshippers. We were created by God to be devoted. But with the fall came this disconnection from God. And we, were, we still have this need to worship. But if we're not worshipping God, we're worshipping something else. And everybody worships something. And when we come to Christ, it's that decision of, to say goodbye to the old way of life is to, is to tear down those idols and say, I will put you first. But again, those things have this horrible habit of rising up. There was a situation some years ago, uh, I was asked to go and lead the Melt Boss congregation. And uh, I said yes, and it was quite a sacrifice. We had to uh, move out of our house and move across town and take our kids out of school but we did it willingly because we were devoted to kingdom. And then I arrived to preach on the first Sunday that I was going to lead the congregation, and Andrew leads Josh Jen was, was there, and he chatted to me. He said, Mike, I've been thinking and I've been praying, and actually, I don't think you should come and lead this congregation. I, I think Ivan should. Would you go to another congregation and serve another guy? I said, yeah, not a problem. And in the discussion that took place, people were concerned about me. Is Mike going to be offended? Is Mike going to be upset? Is he, you know, because he's been offered this and now he's this. And Andrew said to the guys, don't worry, Mike's dead in this. He's dead to self. 
which was probably true at that time. But here's the problem. My flesh is like a zombie. It has this nasty habit of rising from the dead and trying to take over again. Have any of you experienced that? You put yourself to death and put Jesus first, and then at some point you look around and go, where did that flesh come from? I thought it was dead. And even things that you thought were absolutely dead in your life, you, you turn around and if you're not careful, it's, it's, it's come to life again. And we find ourselves giving our hearts and giving our lives to things again that we'd, that we'd said no to. And so, a good question to ask ourselves on a regular basis as an audit is, not just am I devoted, but where is my devotion? Where does my devotion lie? And it's good to ask other people, what, what does it look like to you? Because I can tell you, I can take a complete stranger, give me five minutes with him and access to his bank statements, I'll tell you what he's devoted to. Because what you're devoted to will determine where your time, where your talents, and where your treasure lie. My heart is where my treasure lies, Scripture says. And so a good question, where is my devotion? And how deep is my devotion? Has it waned? Has it been distracted? I, I, I think many of us have spiritual ADHD. You know, we're walking along the, Jesus said there's a narrow path and we're walking along it and we're supposed to keep our eyes, uh, you know, focused on Jesus, right? Press egg, focus on him. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But then as we're doing that, it's like, oh, shiny object. Oh, there's a squirrel. Uh, do any of you experience that or is it just me? And there's so many shiny objects. And some of them are good things, but they're not things that we should give our primary devotion to. And that brings me to what is devotion then? What is the definition of devotion? And there's two aspects of devotion I want to cover this morning. The first, if you look at the Greek word used in Acts 2, and I won't give you the Greek word because I'll pr probably pronounce it wrong, but the, the root of it means to move forward or to endure despite obstacles, resistance, difficulty, or persecution. To move forward under pressure. It's to keep going when it gets hard. See, it's, devotion is easy when life is easy. It's a little bit harder when there's a cost. And devotion speaks of moving forward and being devoted to the right thing, regardless of what comes along. And sometimes what comes along is good things that the enemy wants to give our hearts to. I'm going to say some things that might offend on Father's Day, including one of those things can be our children. Are we called to be devoted to our children? Yes but we're called to be devoted to Jesus first. I've prayed for many couples over the years that haven't been able to have children 
and I've seen many children born miraculously. And can I say, in a, in a few cases, I almost wish I'd never prayed for them. Because the gift, and children are a gift from God, God has given a couple a gift, and then the couple begin to worship the, giver, the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And that thing, that child, takes them away from the kingdom of God, takes them away from devotion to God. And here's the thing, everybody's devoted to something, but is it worth your devotion? And many of us are teaching our children, um, here's, here's some, some statistics, not statistics, but uh, psychology, psychologists did some studies around the world. And they said that this generation, the young generation of today, so anybody under 25 today, is the most narcissistic generation on record. They love themselves more than any generation before or since. Higher levels of self-esteem, they are just self that It's the selfie generation. And they are so obsessed with self. We, we went to um, Europe on holiday a few years ago, and one day we were at the Colosseum in Rome. And um, we were sat there for a few hours because the sun was setting, and it was beautiful as the sky changed color, and... You know, you had these tourists from all over the world, and this was a once-in-a-lifetime holiday. We're not, we're not going to do this again, you know. This is, this is amazing. And then I noticed this strange phenomenon, um, and usually it was young ladies, unfortunately, young girls, and they would arrive, not looking like tourists, but looking like they were about to go to a nightclub, you know, high heels, dressed up, makeup, and they would walk up. And there's the Colosseum over there, but they'd look this way, and then... Out comes the phone. Fish face, pouting. And I watch this one girl, and for about 15 minutes, she does this. And then she stops, and she starts to flick through her phone until she finds the perfect picture. And then she, you can tell she's... What's the right filter? Cropping it. Let's, and then hashtag YOLO. Hashtag best life ever. She posts it and then she disappears. Not for one minute did she stop and look at this amazing thing. Because it wasn't about that. It was about being seen at that. It was about me and the image I portray to the world. My selfie. That's why they call it social media, because the emphasis is on me. <laughs> and so we've got the most narcissistic generation in history. But surveys have also shown that rates of suicide and self-harm are also at the highest level ever. What does that tell you? That I can be completely devoted to something, but if it's the wrong thing, it's empty. It doesn't fulfill. And anything other than God, even sin, it can be pornography, it can be drugs, it can be a person. The nature of anything other than God is you can give it your devotion and it can never fulfill you. And in fact, the, the rewards you get are ever decreasing. So you can give more and more of yourself to it and get less and less satisfaction. It's 
So we've got to be devoted first to Jesus. On Father's Day several years ago, my daughter wrote me a song when she was little, Elizabeth. And the song basically said, I love you, Dad, more than anything. So cute. I love you more than, you know, my toys. I love you more than my dogs, Floppy and Kipper. I love you more... And it was just a list of all the things she loved me more than. I don't know if you were on that list, Chantel, but <laughs> I were. <laughs> Except for the last line, where I love you more than this, I love you more than, I love you more than, but not more than God. And I was like, yes, she's got it. I'm number two dad. I'm not the best dad in the world. He is. But here's the thing, if we devote ourselves first to our children rather than to God first and then our children, our children grow up thinking they're the center of the universe, they grow up devoted to themselves, they'll grow up dissatisfied and broken. And I've realized this, because I've got this wrong so many times, but if I devote myself to Jesus, he'll devote himself to my family. And I will never neglect my family if I'm devoted to Jesus. I will neglect my family if I'm devoted to ministry. And there is a difference. And so, so many dads that are absent from the fathers, but their thinking is, I'm working hard to provide money for my family. And the family's just crying out and saying, we don't want your money, we want you. But we can be devoted to good things. Even, you know, I'm... My daughter's in matric this year, you know, so she's, and she's really, that's why she's not with us, she's studying really hard. Uh, she wants to get into university and study sports science and do dance and all kinds of things. And I, I want her to do well in school. But you know what's more important than her schoolwork? Is her relationship to Jesus. I could care less that she's successful and has a good, well-paying job if she loves Jesus. And so many parents, we're, we're investing so much time and energy into our kids' education rather than their spiritual health or sport. And it's great that we, I think if our kids are playing sport, let's support them, let's encourage them. It's a good thing, except if it's surfing. <laughs> but to what end? To what end? I read this thing, they said, the chances of your son becoming a Springbok player are something like 0.01%. The chance of them standing before Jesus one day, 100%. Now, am I saying it's wrong for your child to become a Springbok? No. It may be exactly what God wants. But you know, Satan knows how to give good things if it robs us of best. When Jesus was in the desert, the devil came to him and said, I will give, you've come for the nations, I'll give you the nations. Just bow down and worship me. And if there is something that is capable of grabbing your heart and robbing your devotion to Jesus... Satan is likely to be willing to give it to you. And it can look good. 
We've got to be devoted first to Jesus. We're all devoted to something. So the question is, what are you devoted to? See, Mike loves surfing. I know he does. And if you check, you know, you don't have to be with him long before you hear what he talks about. You know, if you looked at his diary, <laughs> if you look at what he spends his money, if you go to his house and see what's stacked up there, you know, you see, this guy really enjoys surfing. But you know what I also know about him? He would drop that in an instant if Jesus asked him to. Otherwise, why would he move to Asa Fronten from Melpos? <laughs> we wanted to send him to Bloemfontein, but that was just a bridge to that. <laughs> so it's not wrong to love things. But it's got to be in its proper place. And do you know what idolatry is? Idolatry is when anything has more of your heart than it should. And it's interesting, you know, Israel never stopped worshipping Yahweh, even when they fell into idolatry. They would worship other idols and say, yeah, we've got these other gods, but Yahweh's the big God. He's number one, but we'll also worship these. And that is the kind of idolatry many believers today engage in. We never deny Christ. He's still theoretically number one, but we also worship all these other things. And God is a jealous God. Because here's the thing, as much as he's asking for your devotion, he's devoted to you. Have you ever really been in love with somebody or really devoted to somebody and they've not been devoted to you? Have you ever experienced that? How painful it is. That the jealousy and that God is jealous for you. Because he gave himself totally for you. And so this devotion, this is move forward. It's to, to remain devoted. It's to remain in relationship, remain committed, remain doing those things regardless of what I face, regardless of, of temptations, regardless of difficulty, regardless of persecution. And one of the things when we're in an economy like this and we're looking around South Africa and it's easy to grow I mean, I, I've been in South Africa, as I said, since 1994. It's, I think it's like the regular South African thing of there is no hope for this country. Every two or three years, we get to a situation where there's no way out, right? And yet we keep, we keep moving forward somehow. But it's easy to even say, financially, I, I, I can't afford. Oh, I, can't, I can't tithe because my... My, my finances are tight. Yes, I'm not saying the challenges aren't real. I'm saying when you're truly devoted, you move forward despite the challenges and difficulties. You move forward despite the persecution. And when it's impossible, you say, God, this seems impossible, but my desire is still to do it. Can you do in me what it's impossible for me to do in myself? You know, I was, I was sick a few, uh, about a month ago I was sick, and then I, I, I phoned and I said, I can't come to church this morning, I'm sick. And I genuinely was sick. 
So I wasn't feeling guilty. I wasn't feeling condemned. And then the Lord spoke to me. And the question, it wasn't a statement or an accusation. It was just a question. Are you really too sick to go to church? And he took me back and about 16 years ago, I had a back operation. And uh, when I was having the operation, the neurologist said to me, neurosurgeon said to me, after the, after the surgery, it's so important that you do the rehab right, uh, that you follow instructions, because how successful it will be will be determined by how good you are after the, after the surgery. I said, okay. So he said, we'll give you rehab exercises, we'll give you physio. He said, but you're not allowed to sit down for six weeks. You can stand up, you can lie down, but you can't sit down. And immediately I'm thinking, what about church? I wasn't thinking work. I was thinking, oh, I'll take six weeks off work. That's not a problem. <laughs> I was thinking, what about church? I can't miss church for six weeks. I can't miss community. So the first thing we did, uh, well, or my wife did because I couldn't because I had a bad back, is move a bed into our lounge and arrange to have community in my house so I could lie in bed and still be part of community. And then I arranged to have a bed put in the church building. And on a Sunday, about an hour before church, I would put my slippers on because I couldn't put my shoes on, and I would start to shuffle to church. And it would take me about 40 minutes to shuffle to church because I could only walk like this. I would arrive at church, lie on the bed, do worship, listen, to, and the preach had to be good because otherwise, you know, I was at. <laughs> <laughs> and then when the service finished, I walked home. Now, here's the thing. If I said to you, if you were having a back operation, I said, you better make sure you come to church. That would be manipulation. It would, it would be abuse. But if in nobody told me I had to do it, but inside was such a devotion, I cannot miss this thing. How do I make a plan? There was an obstacle. It seemed impossible. But we found a way. See, it's easy to call yourself devoted when everything's easy. Less easy when obstacles get in the way. Is this making sense? And again, I'm not trying to put a law and say, a set a standard because that would be an external trying to force you into a box. I'm saying, what is it within you? And sometimes it is impossible for you to be in places. I, I got COVID. I nearly died twice. It's like I couldn't be at church. But my heart was there. And there have been times, can I confess, Sometimes I'm physically at church, but my heart isn't. So which is more devoted? The absent person who wants to be there or the present person who doesn't? That is devotion. It comes from you. It can only come from you. It's a it's a commitment, and it's not an emotion. It's not simply an emotion. Somebody once said, emotions are great servants and terrible masters. Too many of us are ruled by our emotions. And we're not called to be ruled by our emotions. We're called to rule our emotions. How do I know that? Because Jesus said things like this. Love your enemies. How many of you feel like loving your enemies? How many of you, when that idiot cuts you off in the road and, and you want to give him a V sign, instead you say, let me pray for blessing for him. 
How easy is it? Or when somebody takes your wave. <laughs> it's not easy. And the, the thing is, our emotions are useful because they tell us there's, there's something wrong. But then our will must choose how to respond. And too many people I know who call themselves Christians, you know, they act a certain way and they say, I'm just being myself. But where in the Bible does it say, be yourself? It says, die to self. Be like Christ. I'm going to go find myself. Have you noticed people who want to go find themselves, they never go to Benoni. <laughs> it always goes like Barley or, you know, the Seychelles or somewhere. Nobody, nobody finds themselves in Fixburg. <laughs> Sorry, that's where my, my wife is from, Fixburg in the Free State. So. The school, they had a school song. The, the school song was, I can't read and I can't write, but I can ride a tractor. <laughs> I'm just being myself. No, you're not. And people say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. But hypocrisy is not acting contrary to your emotions. Hypocrisy is acting contrary to what you know to be true. When you know something to be true and you don't do it, that's hypocrisy. So guess what? Most of us are hypocrites. To some degree. Why, why do I say that? Because... If I ask us about our theology and then I ask us about our lives, there's often a, and God in his grace is saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm changing you from one degree of glory to another. Somebody once said to me, I don't want to come to church, it's full of hypocrites. I said, no, there's room for some more. <laughs> but our children are those that act according to the emotions. Can I have a lollipop? No. <laughs> They're just being themselves. They're acting according to their emotions. And what do we teach our children as they grow up? Self-control. Maturity. Maturity isn't just giving in to your emotions. Maturity is mastering your emotions. And so devotion isn't just a feeling. If devotion was just a feeling, my wife would have divorced me a hundred times by now. Except for before we married, we agreed Divorce would never be an option. No matter how bad things get, we will never get divorced. I'm worried about murder. She might smother me in my sleep. But divorce is not an option. But it can't be my feelings. It's got to be a decision. But if it's just a decision and there's no feelings, then, that's, then it's not divorce. It's a decision to position myself and often my feelings catch up. It's amazing that people who battle unforgiveness, you bring them to a place and say, can you pray forgiveness or can you release this person? Can you forgive them? Not because they deserve it, not because you feel like it, but because Jesus asked you to do it. Yes, I'll do it. Can you pray a prayer of blessing over this person? And it's incredible how often I've seen when somebody chooses obedience, their emotions follow. And when we come to Jesus, our emotions are involved. It is an emotional decision, and he changes who we are. And it's, it's exciting, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's, it's moving. And then over time, we, find out, we can find our emotions out of line. But as we make the choice, our emotions come into line. Devotion comes from you. 
It's your choice to be devoted, what to be devoted to, and to keep going despite obstacles and difficulties. And then the second, and this will be shorter, but the second kind of aspect of devotion, the the second facet of what devotion can speak of, we see when we look at the Old Testament. See, devotion in English means to give all or a large part of oneself or one's resources to a particular person or activity. And so, devotion is giving all of yourself to Jesus, not part of yourself. And when we look at the Old Testament, there's a word that keeps getting used, devoted, devoted, devoted. And one of the ways it's used might not immediately come to mind, but I'm going to read to you from Joshua Uh, chapter 6, and maybe you'll get where I'm going. And so, God, uh, Jesus, the captain of the Lord's army, is speaking to Joshua about Jericho, and he says, I'm going to give you the city. I'll, I'll give it to you. And then he says from verse 17, and the city and all that is, w- that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So, think about this. In, in ancient times, the way you motivated your people to go to war was, if you don't die and we win, you get rich, right? Because we, we plunder the enemy. And so they're thinking, if we go into Jericho, God's given us this promised land, we'll plunder the city and we'll take everything for ourselves. And God says, no, I'm giving you this city. So in this case, I want everything given to me. Everything must be devoted to me. So you destroy it. Because by destroying it, that's a way of giving it to me totally and irrevocably. You can never take it back. And so devotion in this context meant to give something over to God and not keep it for yourself. And most of us know the story. I won't go to the next verses because I've been going long already. One of the tribe just keeps a little bit for himself. 99.9% of the city is given to God, but one Israelite sees a couple of gold things and goes, no harm done if I just keep this little bit. I've given so much. And how we can justify ourselves. I've given so much, it doesn't matter if I keep this bit. But God has warned them that this will happen. And he warns us because he says this, in that same verse, 16 to 17, it says, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things. In other words, be careful, because having once decided to give it, you'll look at it and go, oh, I want it back. And that can happen with our lives, it can happen with our money, it can happen with so many things that, that it's like, Oh, I know God wants me to give this and I've given it, but oh, now I want it back. Or I want just a little bit back. And things have have a habit or a tendency of hooking our hearts. And Achan allows himself to take back that which he'd promised to God. And what happens is that the next battle, all of Israel is defeated. 
because of the idolatry of one man. And God speaks to them, and God deals with them. And in Joshua 7, verse 11 to 13, God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. He goes on, he says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow, says the Lord, um, there are devoted things in your midst, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. I've seen that time and again. You cannot stand against your enemies while there are the devoted things amongst you. Let's just take finances because God uses finances a lot because it's a really good barometer of our hearts. When we say everything is yours, Lord, and then we start trying to hold on. Maybe we're unfaithful with our giving. We're, we're not generous like we used to be because we, we developed this, this, this mentality of I've got to, I've got to keep, I've got to survive, I've not got enough. And it's amazing, I've seen it time and time again, that when people try and hold on for themselves what rightfully belongs to God, so often they end up losing even more because they can't stand. Does that make sense to you? It says, consecrate yourselves. And we're going to deal with this. We're going, to, we're going to come before the Lord and we're going to give him back what is rightfully his. And the word consecrate is just a fancy theological word. It simply means this. To make or declare something sacred. To dedicate something to God. And the word holy. We use the word holy a lot. You know you're a holy people. Do you know what the word holy means? There is a moral component to it, but the word holy literally means separate. When something has been made holy, if there was a cup and it was to be used in the temple, they would consecrate it. They would pour oil on it, which is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Say, from this day forward, that has to be used for a holy purpose. And when we came to Christ, we were anointed with oil. The Holy Spirit came upon us and said, you no longer are fit to be used for a common purpose you are now to be used for a holy purpose. You have only one purpose in life, and your one purpose is to serve God. Which means this, if you've got a job, your purpose for going to work isn't primarily to make money. Your primary purpose in going to work is to glorify God. So you work hard, you'd be the best employee. You represent Jesus in your character. If you're a dad or a mom, your primary responsibility is to glorify God to your children. We are consecrated. We have been made holy. We have been set apart for a holy purpose, which is to serve and glorify God. And when we do that, when we understand, when we, remember it says, consecrate yourselves. When I present myself before the Lord and say, send your spirit to separate me from this world. I don't want to live for this world. I don't want to love the things of this world. I'm in this world, but not of this world. 
I want to be salt and light to this world. I want people to see that I'm different. This world is not my home. I'm only visiting this planet. I'm just passing through. I don't belong here. And the values of this world are not my values. The priorities of this world are not my priorities. And when we are those people, when we are fully consecrated to God, man, what a difference we can make. A guy called Phillips Brooks said this. It does not take great men to do great things. It only takes consecrated men. We don't have to be the brightest, most gifted, most charismatic. We just need to be given to God. That's devotion. When I've given myself and all of myself totally, completely, and irrevocably to him. In Romans 12, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it mean by a living sacrifice? A sacrifice was what went on the altar and was burned up. And it's saying, brothers, this is your worship. Take your life, take your body, take your flesh, lie on the altar and say, burn it. Burn it. So that all my flesh is gone. All of me is gone and what remains is Christ. That's devotion. And that's a hard ask, isn't it? There's a third day song, I love it. And the chorus is, Lord, take from me my life when I don't have the strength to give it away to you. And in the song he's saying, I know that I must fully give myself. I know that I must fully surrender. And it's too big an ask. But I'm willing. God, won't you take from me what I can't give? And even that is enough for the Lord, a willingness. I remember as a young man, I was in worship one day. You know that thing where you've sung a song a thousand times and suddenly you realize what you're singing? And this one song, the words were, and all that I have, I lay at the feet of the wonderful Savior who loved me. And as I was singing it, I stopped. I said, I can't sing that. I can't sing it and mean it. I want to, Lord, but I can't. I said, Lord, please help me come to a place where I can sing that and mean it. And after worship, as you tend to do, I kind of forgot and carried on with life. And over the next six months, I lost my job, lost my car, lost my girlfriend. I, was, I lost everything. And I, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm supposed to be blessed. Why are you allowing all this? And his answer, he said, because you asked me to. When? When did I ask you to make my life hell? He said, no, you asked me to bring you to a place where you could say all that you have, you would give to me. And so I'm taking all these things away so that you don't, so you can see that your life is fine without them. 
I'm bringing you to a place where you can totally surrender. And by the grace of God, he took everything away from you. In 1 Peter, it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a separated people, a people belonging to God, a people for his own possession. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You've been bought with a price. You belong to him. And I want to finish with this quote. It's a powerful quote from a guy called F.B. Mayer. Jesus Christ has bought us with his blood, but alas, he has not had his money's worth. He paid for all, and he's had but a fragment of our energy, time, and earnings. By an act of consecration, let us ask him to forgive the robbery of the past, and let us profess our desire to be henceforth utterly and only for him, his slaves, owning no master other than himself. It's a powerful statement. And I have to say, even for myself, to some degree, that's true. Jesus bought me with a price. He paid for me with his own blood. And at times, he hasn't had his money's worth because I've robbed him, because he bought all of me. And at times, I keep some of me for myself. What is devotion? Devotion is when, out of my own choice, an own conviction, I make that choice to say, Lord, I give myself everything that I am and everything that I have, I give it to you. And having done that, no matter what I face, what difficulties, what challenges, what obstacles, or whatever persecutions, I remain a living sacrifice, totally devoted to you. And that sounds so hard, doesn't it? It sounds so difficult. And in many ways it is. In many ways it's impossible. But he's called the God of the impossible for a reason. But you know, we talk about dying to live. And it's not just about dying, it's dying to live. And I'll finish with this. Because you go, why should I do that? Why would I give myself? Why would I die? Why would I give everything? Why would I... Why would I make everything second to Jesus? Why would I give my money and my time and my energy, devote it to that extent? And the answer is this. From my experience, I have never sacrificed anything for Jesus. Because whatever he's asked from me and I've given, he's replaced with something so much better. I gave him my life he gave me a better life. I've given him finances. And not only in eternity, but in this life, I've been blessed. I've given him my time. I've given him so much, but I've given him nothing compared to what he gave me and what he continues to give me. Because when I am devoted... I gain the rewards of a devoted life.
So I want to encourage you, as a leader, I can't compel you. I can't force you. I can't manipulate you. But I urge you and encourage you with every fiber of your being. Some of you may have, have, have done church and done religion and done everything, but you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. Today is the day to say, I surrender. I give it. I choose devotion today. And it gives you a new life and a new set of priorities. Some of us have made that call. We've surrendered to Christ. We may have even sung the song, I surrender all. I surrender all. And found that maybe we've picked up our lives. We've picked up our finances. We've picked up our families. We've picked up these things that we once surrendered and devoted to Christ. And I would urge us this day in an act of consecration to bring ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, I devote myself and everything back to you. Even as a father on Father's Day, I always prided on my, myself on my ability to lead, my ability to protect. I'm pretty smart, my ability to teach. And God, over the years, in many humbling ways, has reminded me that I am insufficient as a father. And if I try and keep my kids, I will lose them. But if I devote my kids truly to him, he will supernaturally work in them and through me, and I will become a much better dad than I could be if I consider them fully mine. Does that make sense? I've seen it with my finances. I've seen it with my wife. When I was a leader in the church and going around the world and people get you great leadership gift and I couldn't even lead my wife through a difficult situation. I had to surrender to God and say, God, I can't do this. I encourage us to be a people hallmarked by devotion. And in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. Actually, I don't think they were devoted to those things so much as that's what it looks like when you're devoted to Jesus. Because if I'm devoted to Jesus, I want to hear about him when apostles teach. If I'm devoted to Jesus, I, I want to break bread and remember his death. If I'm devoted to Jesus, I want to pray because that's just talking to him. If I'm devoted to Jesus, I want fellowship because that's, that's how he's manifesting in our midst. And one of the difficulties of, of being devoted to fellowship, it's really difficult to love some of you guys. Right? I'm difficult to love. We can be offended and hurt, and that's one of the obstacles. Am I going to continue devotion even when I'm hurt? When, when Mike forgets my birthday, or when he overlooks me, or when he says something I don't like, when I'm offended, am I going to give up or am I going to persevere despite those obstacles? Can we be a people who are devoted to Jesus and to his body, each other? Because this world doesn't need gifted men and women. It needs consecrated men and women. And we will see the world changed. Maybe not the world, because that's a big ask. You can see your families changed. Your schools and your workplaces. Your neighborhoods changed. Maybe this town changed. If people see what it looks like to be fully devoted to Jesus. Amen. Wow. Thank you, Mike. No, I think you all look 